you know what, turn to Ephesians 1. We're not going to restart the book altogether, no. Um, but I want us to bring, bring us ourselves up to speed with where we've been in Ephesians so far. Just a very 30,000-foot overview of the book, kind of at the height of Mount Everest, right? Uh, so go ahead and flip to the first chapter. First chapter of Ephesians, kind of chapters 1 and 2. We see that God, in his glorious grace, redeems a people. This group of people that God redeemed, they were dead in their transgressions and sins. But God made them alive because of the great love with which he loved them. He forgave them through the work of his son on the cross. He breathed life into them through the work of his spirit in their hearts. God saved this group of people. God gave this group of people an inheritance. He gave this group everything, even though they deserved nothing. And as the book continues, as this letter continues, he Paul talks more about this group of people. He says that God in his glorious wisdom to show off how great he is would include both Jews and Gentiles in this group of people. That God has broken down human hostilities in this group and he has replaced them with gospel peace. As the book continues, Paul's clear that God has given this group of people power, resurrection power. And they're going to need it because God commands them to walk in a certain way. God commands this group of people to walk worthy of what he has done for them. To walk worthy of what he is calling them toward. This is kind of the transition from the first three chapters to chapters four to six. Chapters four to six, we've seen, have dealt much with application. All right, so now what does... What does it look like to live out the gospel? What do I do? How do I live? That's chapters 4 to 6. Now, if you just take chapters 4 to 6, you glance at it, different things Paul calls to us to do. And you can think about something. Imagine if the church in Ephesus followed through perfectly all that chapters 4 to 6 what if they obeyed it out perfectly? What if they lived this to a T, chapters 4 to 6? What would be the result? What would it look like? Well, if they followed through on this perfectly, then conflict would never consume them. They would always find a way to stay united. If they lived this out perfectly, they would never compromise their witness to the outside world. No one could ever call them hypocrites. If they lived this out perfectly, Ephesians would never backslide. They would have bonus. They would have perfect home lives if they followed through on this. They'd have right marriages. They'd be the best parents. They would have right relationships. They'd be good bosses. They'd be good workers. Could you imagine if the Ephesians followed through on chapters 4 to 6 perfectly? Could you imagine if the church today followed through chapters 4 to 6 perfectly. But we don't, do we? It's kind of the issue. So we ask why. Why don't we follow through on this? There's a few answers we could give, a few different right answers. We could say rightly that 
Christians are works of progress. Right? We still deal with our flesh, our sin. We can say rightly, why don't we follow through on this perfectly? That we still live in the world. We still like what God has saved us from. I think there's a third factor. We probably don't consider this third factor as much as we should. Why don't we follow through perfectly on what God has called us to do? We face opposition. There is someone who does not want us to follow through on this perfectly. And so then you can see the logic behind of why Paul closes his letter in the way that he does. He's realistic. It's like he's telling the Ephesians, you know all that I've been telling you to do? Like this would be a perfect church if you guys followed through on this. All the stuff I'm trying to get you to live. Yeah, Satan is going to try to work completely against it. I'm calling you to be united. Satan's going to try to make you divided. I'm calling you to have good marriages. Satan's going to try to break up the, your marriages or break up your homes. And on the line down he goes. Satan works against So in closing, in the way that Paul does, it's he wants to put them on alert. But more than that, he doesn't want to leave them hope, hopeless. This section here is not just putting the Ephesians on alert. It's meant to be an encouragement as well. It's Paul meant to tell the Ephesians, God hasn't left you defenseless against the attacks you face. So if we're going to sum up this uh, Ephesians verses 10 to 17, we can sum it up like this. The only way we can stand against our enemy is if we make use of the defenses of our champion. The only way we can stand against our enemy is if we make use of the defenses of our champion. So brought up to speed, let's, let's now read Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17. You can follow along as I read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now, just a flyover of this passage in particular. Paul begins by establishing our need, establishing our need. As they say, the struggle is real, and Paul acknowledges it. So we're going to start our time by looking at the call to stand firm in verses 10 to 13. And then in the next big section, Paul shows how God meets our need. So he establishes our need. He shows how God meets our need. This is where Paul lists the different defenses that God has given to his people. So the second part of our time will deal with the armor of God. So let's, 
uh, first focus on the call to stand firm. Here we're looking at verses 10 to 13. And looking at these verses, two truths become abundantly clear. We need sturdiness. And we need sturdiness because we face opposition. We need sturdiness. Notice how verse 10 begins. Be strong in the Lord. Another way to put this would be strengthen yourselves in the Lord. Maybe that's a little more clear of a command. Now we just follow the logic of this. If sturdiness is something we need, if strengthening ourselves in the Lord is something we have to do, then it must tell us that on our own we do not have sturdiness. That on our own we do not have strength. You know, this the first opening phrase in verse 10, it actually shows up in the Old Testament almost verbatim. It comes in the story of David, strengthen yourself in the Lord. Now, at this point where that phrase pops up in the story of David, David had already been anointed king of Israel by Samuel way back when he was the runt boy, uh, the shepherd boy in his family. At this point in the story of David, when that phrase pops up, David had already slayed Goliath. That big bad Philistine that nobody else could beat. At this point where that phrase pops up, David had already enjoyed his meteoric rise as a general in the Israelite army. He had already garnered the praise of thousands of Israelites. At this point in the story where the phrase, strengthen yourself in the Lord, pops up in David's story. He had already been on the run from King Saul. chances to kill this king, and he passed them up. And even at this point in the story, David found more respect from enemy kings than he found from his own king, Saul. At this point in the story, strengthen yourselves in the Lord, where that phrase pops up in David's story. There was a group of people that Saul should have fought off. Now, because of that, the Amalekites were laying siege to Israel, and they were winning. And the, if it gets even worse, that if this would break David's heart. But now, everybody's blaming David for it. It's your fault that the Amalekites are doing this. This is the point in the story where this phrase pops up. Now, you can imagine what the self-help gurus or the, or the Instagram might tell David to say at this point in his life. They might try to spur him on to a pep talk to say, listen, David, who are you? David, you are the guy who killed this 14-foot-tall man when everybody else around you basically peed their pants. <laughs> you are the guy who has killed lions and bears. You are the guy who is undefeated in battle. self-help pep talk, that's not the point of the story. At this point, this low point, what does it say? 1 Samuel 30 verse 12, David strengthened himself in the Lord. Ephesians 6 verses 10 to 13 are clear that we need sturdiness. We do not have sturdiness on our own. Now some of us don't need convincing of this. Other of us do. But the good news either way 
has discussed this theme of power so far in the book of Ephesians. He's discussed it a couple times. You could flip back to chapter 1, verse 19. He said that the power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power in each person who trusts in Jesus. That resurrection power is in each believer. In chapter 316, he prayed for God to empower believers by the Spirit. And so right here in chapter 6, here we get to see one area where that power shows up, where that power manifests itself. Sturdiness. It's God's power that makes us sturdy. His strength makes us stand firm. But there's another aspect of our need that Paul develops here that these verses makes clear. And we've already said we don't have sturdiness on our own. We need it. God alone gives it. The other aspect of it, we need sturdiness, but we must receive it. We must receive it. God's power comes to those who ask. We are active, not passive in this promise. Notice all the commands that Paul lists in verses 10 to 13. He tells them straight up, put on the whole armor of God. Do all that you can to stand firm. This is the same balance of the Christian life known throughout the New Testament. That on the one hand, yes, God gives us what we need to walk after Christ. He strengthens us. He protects us. He works in us. But on the other hand, we have to take hold of what he's given. This balance is perhaps captured no better um, in the verses Philippians 2, verses 12 to 13. You might know these. It says, work out your own salvation with and trembling. This is on us. Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his pleasure. So we need sturdiness. We won't get it from ourselves. We'll get it only from the Lord, and we must receive it. But Paul makes another truth abundantly clear in verses 10 to 13. Two big truths in these verses. We need sturdiness, and we need sturdiness because we face opposition opposition. We think of other reasons why we need sturdiness. One, life is just hard. So we need sturdiness. We are weak in ourselves. We're foolish. We're vulnerable. So we need sturdiness. But a big reason we need this too is because an enemy opposes us. And Paul does what good soldiers have always done when they are entrenched in battle. Paul sizes up wants us to know who it is that opposes us. Because Paul understands that if you underestimate your opponent, the consequences will be dire. So what does Paul want us to know about our enemy, our opposer? Well, we can go through these verses. We can see in verse 11, Paul wants us to know that our enemy schemes against us. Our enemy schemes against us. He strategizes. He does not play fair. This enemy does not abide by the Geneva Convention. He is cunning, relentless. Y'all, he is effective. He is very good at what he does. He's been at this much longer than you and I have been around here. And he will do anything to gain a foothold among God's people. He schemes against us. You know, we can see these schemes already at work in the book of Ephesians. Paul mentioned
mentioned back in chapter 4, verse 14, the craftiness and deceitful schemes of false doctrine. Satan's called the ultimate author of every lie. He twists the truth to lead people astray from God. He aims to make Christians wobbly, not sturdy. And he intends to undermine our trust in God's word and our trust in God's goodness. He schemes. Paul highlights another scheme of the devil in chapter 4, verse 27. There, it's, uh, we see that the devil seizes the opportunity of anger in the church. It's an opportunity for him. Christians get angry with one another, and Satan is ready to pounce. Satan is ready to bring hurt and division to the body of Christ when there is anger. Oh, that is a word for our very angry world. What does Paul want us to know about our enemy? Well, we need sturdiness, right? We need sturdiness because we face opposition. So what does Paul want us to know about this opposition? This opposition, this enemy schemes against us, but he also wants us to know that this enemy is unlike any other enemy unlike any other enemy we face. He says, he is not flesh and blood. He is not someone we see. He is not someone we fight the same way we would a physical opponent. We need spiritual weapons for a spiritual battle. You know, I think one of Satan's most effective schemes is to get us to think that he is just like every other opponent we face. In other words, what Satan wants us to do is to get us to concentrate on our forces on fronts where the battle is not ultimate, where the battle does not truly rage. In other words, Satan wants us distracted. We think of examples of our of distractions around us. It's, it's interesting that uh, a common phrase ourselves, have we achieved greatness in our culture if we lose our Christian witness in the process? Satan will happily take the exchange if the quote-unquote right side wins the culture, if it means they lose their witness or at worst, lose their soul. What does Paul want us to know about the enemy? He schemes against us. He's crafty. He is unlike any other Satan wields a massive influence. After all, he's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. He is the head of the, the domain of darkness, the ruler of this present evil age. This is what Paul wants us to know about our enemy. He sizes him up. Now, just to be clear, Paul does not want us to fear this enemy. He wants us to be humble in this battle. The big takeaway he wants for us is not to fear wants us to be alert. Now the Ephesians themselves, they would have been aware of the spiritual battle around them. We remember the background of Ephesians way back in Acts 19. It tells us that God saved many of the Ephesians out of practicing dark arts, out of practicing strength. 
straight-up satanic practices. And despite their awareness, Paul still tells them to be alert. If he tells these guys that they need to be alert to Satan, how much more does he need to tell us we need to be aware of Satan? The Puritan William Gurnall uses a striking image in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor. He says this, the saint's sleeping time is Satan's tempting time. Every fly dares venture to creep on the sleeping lion. The only, the only time the fly is bold enough to land on that big lion is when he's fast asleep. So one of Satan's highest goals is to keep us from being alert. One of Satan's highest goals is to coax us to sleep. So I think it's worth just dwelling on for a moment. How does Satan, how does Satan do this? I think we can be coaxed to sleep not be alert either through busyness activity or through comfort. So on busyness activity on that front, I've heard a, a useful illustration of how a lot of us live. A lot of us live like highways with no off-ramps. Highways with no off-ramps. All activity all the time. It doesn't even have to be you're doing something all the time. It could just be that you're consumed with something all the time. Either you're doing something or either something's right in front of your eyes, that you're just all motion, all highway, no off-ramp. And if you live like that, constantly active, constantly stimulated, constantly entertained, sooner or later, either you're going to run out of fuel or you're going to crash. And while you're in that mode, you are not alert in the battle that is around you. So Satan coaxes us out of alertness, even through activity. But we could talk about the other thing. Satan coaxes us out of alertness through comfort. Now, a lot of preachers like to bash the church in America. I, I, I don't want to be the guy who's known for that. Uh, I think there's a lot to celebrate, a lot to thank God for about the church in America. But when we consider this topic in particular, coaxing us to sleep through comfort, boy, is that a temptation here. Because we have lots of comforts. I just think if, when we compare ourselves to our, brother, our brothers and sisters around the world and what they have to face, our brothers and sisters, so many around the world, have to face threats from their actual families for being Christians. Our brothers and sisters around the world, their churches face literal government shutdown. And then I compare that to here, and I, I know it's a little touchy, but I compare it to how a lot of people have responded to masks. And like, listen, y'all have been such good sports. And, and I, I get it. Masks are really annoying. I, we're rounding third. We're heading home on that. Um, and the messaging on it has been really inconsistent. That's frustrating. But I just don't know if it's worth getting so angry about. Especially when. Are you awake 
will not stand firm if you are not. Are you vigilant or have you left yourself vulnerable? If we don't stand firm in the Lord, our enemy will keep us from trusting in the Lord. He will keep us from loving our Savior. He will keep us from obeying our Master. He will keep us from effectively serving in Christ's kingdom. Stay alert. Now we'll move on to the second section in the armor of God, verses 14 to 18, just to lead up to that. During our workday a couple weeks ago, uh, we cleaned in the parking lot in and around the shed area. Uh, So there is just some debris, there is some brush, just kind of general untidiness. And next to the middle shed, it was like this mega weed. I I don't know what it was. It was, I think it was a tree. It had to be a tree. And so, I mean, I I didn't have anything with me. I was like, let me just try to pull this out. It's kind of like loose soil. But I could get it. Good of a grip as I could. Use my legs to lift. Wasn't really budging. And then then Ken Slaughter came. He tried to budget. I thought, all right, maybe after Ken worked at it, like it's a little loose. Tried again. Still unsuccessful. And so then Dan Schaefer, God bless him, there in his uniform too. Um, Dan Schaefer comes with his saber saw, chops it down one second. We need sturdiness, we need strength. We do not have it in our in ourselves. And here we see God gives us the tools to be strong. God gives us the defenses that we need. And so uh, clearly. So he he likens these defenses to pieces of armor. And Paul and the Ephesians would be familiar with the armor of a common Roman soldier. You know, Christians have spilled much ink covering each of these armor pieces. I'm not sure if Paul intends the Ephesians to slow down on each individual piece rather than consider the whole. Yes, different components have distinct functions against the devil's schemes. At the same time, there's a lot of overlap. And when he tells us about the armor, I think Paul's making one central point. That Satan has many schemes, but God has provided head-to-toe defenses so that we can stand firm against them. So we'll go through each part of the armor kind of briefly. We'll notice how each part combats against the devil's scheme, and then we'll kind of circle back to consider the whole. All right, so Paul presents the armor pieces in two sets of three. The first three parts are items that we wear. So pay attention closely to how he uh, words verse 14. You see, we can stand firm only after we have already put on this armor. Only after we put it on. It's like the person, if you live constantly at a sprint, it's hard to put on armor when you're sprinting. You have to slow down. So the first piece is the belt of truth. Roman soldiers, just like I hope, They could control their tunic and march freely. And also, the belt's added benefits was that it held their sword. So just like the rest of the armor, the belt facilitated the soldier's stability, sturdiness. Now, it says that the belt is the belt of truth. The Bible uses the word truth in a couple of different ways. One way it uses truth is to refer to what's in our hearts. Truth of heart or sincerity. We see this even in the book of Ephesians, back in chapter 4. Verse 25, 
exhorted the Ephesians to put away lying and speak the truth to one another. A person committed to telling the truth can stand firm against Satan, the father of all lies. But another way the Bible talks about truth is the truth. This is shorthand for God's revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls himself the truth. The gospel is the truth. So the belt of truth could also be just true teaching or doctrine. So if we know this truth, then we can move freely and stably in the face of Satan's lies. So we can keep in mind both of these aspects of truth when thinking about the belt of truth. I think the same works for the next piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. There are a couple of ways that the Bible talks about righteousness. We can see our own righteousness, how this would protect us against the schemes of the devil. Again, we keep in context the book of Ephesians. According to chapter 5, verse 9, Paul expects Christians to walk in all that is good and right and true. This makes sense. If we develop good character and right conduct, then we will grow increasingly resistant to the devil's temptations. But the Bible also refers to righteousness as being right with God. Being right with God. And that comes ultimately not from our good conduct and character. Being right with God comes from accepting Christ's good conduct and character in our place. So we see this breastplate of righteousness in that light, in action, in a book like 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, we know these verses. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. One commentator combines these two senses of righteousness like this. The completeness of pardon for past offense and the integrity of character that belong to the justified life are woven together into an impenetrable nail, the breastplate. Another essential piece to our armor are our gospel shoes. You might remember Nike's ad campaign for the Air Jordans. Movie director Spike Lee saw Michael Jordan play, and what did he say? It's got to be the shoes. Now these gospel shoes won't make us like Mike. They will make us like Jesus. Earlier in Ephesians 2, verse 17, Paul says that Jesus came and preached peace to us. Isaiah 52, verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Now, think about this. These shoes are something that make us sturdy. So, did you know, did you know that sharing your faith can stabilize your faith? Sharing stabilize your faith. I don't know about you, but I never regret talking about Jesus to someone. Never. I'm always scared of it, but I never regret it. Maybe I, I regret how I talk about Jesus, but not talking about Jesus. Sharing my faith always leaves me more confident in my faith. More than that, sharing my faith moves me to grow in my faith. And so, friends, one way to stand firm against the devil's schemes is to share the gospel. We say Satan is content with comfortable Christians. Satan is content with distracted Christians. But you know what? Satan is also content with inward Christians. 
sets us free from pain. Perhaps one reason our faith feels so wobbly is because we don't share it. If, just think about it. If we don't believe the gospel is good enough for other people, sooner or later we might question whether it's good enough for us. So commit this week, friends, to speak some truth about Jesus with someone else. Maybe it's something that you read. You, you might next piece of armor belongs to the second set of three. These are items we take up. Paul says, in all circumstances, we take up the shield of faith. No matter how much swagger you think you have, no matter how crummy you feel, we stand behind protection outside of ourselves. Now, the Roman soldier could stand entirely behind his shield. But enemies of Rome developed this new warfare technology to penetrate seemingly impenetrable shields. They took their arrows and they asked the same question that men have asked throughout history. What if we just lit it on fire? <laughs> and still, Roman military contractors designed shields even to resist these flaming darts. But think about this. You would need faith in your shield against a flaming dart. After all, your shield is made of wood. Wood burns. If your shield took one of these flaming arrows, you'd be tempted to get rid of your shield. But the moment you did, you would be exposed. So the question for the soldier is, would he trust that his shield would hold up against the flame? Same question for us. Will you trust that your shield will hold? Because Satan our sin, our past, in an attempt to get us to drop God. Because after all, God couldn't really love hypocrites like us, could he? He couldn't really love people who have done what we have done, could he? Satan will hurl darts during times of pain. Because after all, God really can't be good through this time in my life, can he? No, friends, our shield will hold. Our shield will hold through accusations, our shield will hold through pain. See this shield in action in Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just two more pieces. soldier's helmet not only protected him, it also identified him. It showed whose army he belonged to. So when we wear the helmet of salvation, we are identified as those who God has saved. I like to think of it like a championship t-shirt. Back in 2014, I can't believe it's been that long, the Ohio State Buckeyes won the college football national championship. It was a great team. They didn't just win, they crushed everything. And so after they won, they, they came out with these shirts that were really cool. It says, Undisputed Champs. It was so cool, I bought one of those shirts. And every time I wore it around, I just felt proud. Because the Buckeyes' victory felt like my victory. How much greater than, friends, for the Christian. 
that Christ's victory is my victory. We read in Revelation 12 that Christians have conquered their accuser by the blood of the Lamb. So when we wear this helmet of salvation, we say, I am not my own, but I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ who loved me and gave himself up for me, whose victory is my victory. The final piece of God's armor is the only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Friends, Satan hates God's word. He twists it. We see that in the Garden of Eden. We see him attempt to do that with Jesus in the wilderness. Satan snatches up God's word. He wants to keep us from it. Jesus explains this in the parable of the sower. Scripture also tells us that Satan blinds us to God's word. He hates the word because he's scared of the word. The question for us here about the sword of the spirit, how can you be ready to face your adversary if you do not know the word? How can you use this sword if you do not know the word So friends, think of this time, Sunday mornings, listening to the word. Think of this time as giving you equipment for the battle. Seriously, don't just listen to what's here. Use it. Use what you listen to. And can I also make a plea for memorizing scripture? If you have a hard time doing this, try putting scripture to music. There's a reason why everybody at a wedding reception knows the something about our our minds and tune to to know lyrics. There's so many good resources for this. You could try fighterverses.com. There's also a group called Seeds Family Worship. You can do that with kids. There's a group that that puts the New Testament kind of to like hip-hop beats, which is really cool, I think. It's called Streetlights Music. And there's just so many other good artists who have put the Psalms to music, from Shane and Shane to Sandra McCracken to a guy named Tor Bishop Cooper. And friends, if not memorization, we're just trying to get you to use the sword of the spirit. If not that, then maybe it's just taking a verse with you throughout the day, keeping it on a note card. And that's what you look at at work throughout the day. The several of us have observed that the word Paul uses for sword here refers to a short sword. So that means we will be in close personal contact, combat. how we stand firm. This is a concluding thought. Have you heard people say that God won't give us anything we can't handle? Have you heard people say that? This passage gives us a better promise than that. God will give us all we need. God will give us all we need. Whatever comes against us, God will give us what we need. Brothers and sisters, this passage to Christians. He writes this to people who already know and believe the gospel. He writes it to them because he knows they still 
is their armor. So friends, let's join in. Let's arm ourselves with it and stand firm in the strength of it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us defenseless. And Lord, we need your strength. Please make us strong against the schemes of the devil. And please give us hope that we do not face this without certainty of victory. That Jesus, you have crushed the serpent's head and then one day we will be free from him. And we will be free from sin with you. And until then, Silence.